This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast and God bless. Ooh, parenting can be a fearful thing. January 25th and 26th, our first annual Rosemont Family Summit. We understand the importance of teaching parents to disciple their children. It's your responsibility. The church's job is to partner with you to help you better understand how to do that, and we want to help you do that. Put that on your calendar, January 25th, 26th. It's a Friday night, Saturday. Friday night, we've got a really big-name speaker coming in. Very excited about this person coming in and speaking to our church. I'm not going to tell you who it is now. I'm going to wait until after Christmas. So you guys put that on your calendars, 25th and 26th of January. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the opportunity for the next little while, Father, to study your word. And I pray that as we study, we would be enlightened to the truth of your word. I pray, Father, that you would just speak to us in mighty and powerful ways, Lord. I pray that we would leave here transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. We will never fully understand the events that took place on Friday morning in Newtown, Connecticut. Now, as the news of that tragedy spread, you did what so many other people did, what I did. Our first thoughts went to the families of those victims, to the people of that school, to the people of that community and their loss, loss that we can never really understand, untold grief and sadness. But we also know that as our thoughts went to those people and and our hearts went out to all that they had been through, our second thought was to our own family and to our own children and to our own community. And we ask ourselves the question, what if? What if that had been LaGrange, Georgia? What if that had been our school? What if those had been our children? It's very difficult to get our minds around that Scenario and get our minds around that event and to understand the scope of what actually happened. But it's interesting to me in stories like this, in the midst of tragedy, we always hear stories of heroes, people that risk their lives to save others. We, we hear the story of the janitor that apparently made his way into some of the rooms to warn the teachers. We hear the story of the intercom system being left on so that the people in the school would be warned of what was coming. We hear the story of the f- first responders that arrived within minutes We hear the stories of the brave students and the heroic teachers pulling children into their closets and into their classrooms to save them. I'm sure as the days and weeks pass, we'll hear more and more of those stories. But when a tragedy of this magnitude happens, inevitably, we have questions. And our questions usually begin with the immediate and the concrete. And so we ask questions like, why didn't the security procedures work? How did he get into the building? Where did all the weapons come from? What, what led him to this point? What things in his past brought him to this place in his life that he felt like he had to do this? But as is the case with all tragedies, they oftentimes begin with the immediate, but they always move to the eternal. And ultimately, they lead to God. And so we ask questions like this, how could God allow such a thing to happen? How could God allow that sort of evil in that school? Where was God on Friday morning in Newtown, Connecticut? And so as we delve into this idea this morning, truth in the midst of tragedy, we need to begin by realizing, first of all, there are no easy answers. 
You're not going to leave this service this morning with your checklist of all the answers that you have for this situation. We, we don't have answers. And, and we're not going to try to paint over some, some issue or, or, or cast this in some favorable light because we understand very clearly that what happened on Friday morning was unimaginable evil. But here's what I want you to do this morning. As believers, as we move through and beyond the pain and the suffering... As Christians, I think we need to be able to think biblically about this event. Because there's going to be plenty of speculation. There's going to be plenty of questions. The world is going to spend plenty of time giving you their take. But I want you to understand something very clearly. In this context, as believers, our answers can't simply be our opinions. In the midst of great tragedy, we need truth. And so I did something this week that I've never done before. I got up Saturday morning and I, I got my sermon out that I've been preparing all week. I, I spend all week working on my sermon. And I usually use Saturday to trim it up a little bit and, and make it a little nicer and put a nice little bow on the top. I feel good about it and I go to sleep Saturday night. But I woke up Saturday morning with, 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 with this burden of this situation. And I started praying about it and I started thinking about it. And so I did something I've never done. I took the sermon that I've been working on all week and I set it aside. And I set it aside because I felt like as a congregation we need to examine a different text. And so this morning I want to take a look. We've been studying the Christmas story for the last couple of weeks. I want to take a look at a portion of the Christmas story. But the portion of the Christmas story I want to focus on this morning is a portion that I think many of us have forgotten. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. I want to be clear as we walk through this again that, that we're not saying as believers that we have all the answers. We, of course, don't. But what I am saying is when we encounter the world and we encounter the comments of the world and we encounter the comments of unbelievers, people that are seeking answers, I'm saying to you that we may not have all the answers, but we need to think clearly and we need to think biblically about these issues. And so I want to examine the truth this morning of Scripture in Matthew chapter 2. Now I'm going to summarize the first 12 verses. We're going to jump into Matthew 2, 13 in just a second. But Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 are the story that you've heard many times past. You've heard it in Christmas years and years and years and years ago, and you've heard it last Christmas, you've heard it already this Christmas. Here's the summary of Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Jesus is born. The Magi, or the wise men from the east, come to worship him. They come to travel. They travel to come and bring him gifts and to worship him. But before they arrive at the scene of his birth, before they arrive at Bethlehem, they stop by Jerusalem and they go see King Herod. King, is, king Herod is the king of the area. And so they go to King Herod and they say, Tell us where we can find the Savior, the king that has been born. Now, if you remember the story, Herod is taken aback, and, and Herod's not quite sure what they mean, so he gathers together his wise men, his counselors, and he says, tell me about this king. And they say, well, the, the prophecies say that a king will be born, and he'll be born in the city of Bethlehem. And so Herod goes to the wise men, and he says to them, you need to go to Bethlehem to find the Savior, but when you find him, Herod says, you need to report back to me and tell me exactly where you found him, because I want to go and worship him. Now, that was a lie. So the wise men go, and they find baby Jesus, and they give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They worship him, and they return home. It's at this point in the story 
that we're going to see for the first time the face of evil. Take a look at verse 13. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. When they had gone, these are the magi, the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, watch this, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. We don't often think about the Christmas story like that, do we? Verse 14. So he got up, he took the child, this is Joseph, and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. Now verse 16 rewinds us a little bit. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. Now watch this. His original intent was to kill Christ. But look what happens. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice in Ramah is heard weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now we'll never have all the answers to the tragedies of life. We'll never fully understand exactly all the things that took place. But when terrible events like this occur, I think as believers, it's very, very important for us to understand the truth. And so I want to examine this passage of Scripture this morning, and I want to draw out some foundational principles that are going to help us understand. They're going to help us understand what happened in Matthew chapter 2. They're going to help us understand what's happened all through history. They're going to help us understand what took place Friday morning in Newtown, Connecticut. Now, the first thing I want to give you is foundational. It's probably the most important thing you need to understand in this tragedy. It's what you're not going to hear from the world, but it's the truth of Scripture. Number one, sin is real and has deadly consequences in our world. Sin is real and has deadly consequences in our world. Now, we began our study weeks ago of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 3. And we looked at the story of God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And I'll remind you that when God had created everything in Genesis 1 and 2, he proclaimed it good. There was no sin, there was no evil, there was no death, there was no disease. Genesis chapter 3, we see the serpent tempts Eve, she takes of the fruit, she sins, sin enters the world, and at that point in history, everything changes. Romans 5.12 sheds a little bit of light on the passage of Genesis 3. Here's what Romans 5.12 says. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Now we can define sin as any failure to conform to the moral law of God. It's It's a failure to conform to God's commands. And we see clearly in Scripture as we study that the Bible explains to us that all men have sinned. And we see very clearly that the wages of our sin is death. But it's at this point that the commentators of the world, it's at this point that the newspaper writers, it's at this point that the media in their search for answers is going to fail you. Because they're going to look for answers in places where they're never going to find them. We're going to hear over and over about the mental state of the attacker. You're going to hear about that. And you're going to hear a cry for more mental health screenings. And you're going to hear a call for more funding to help people with mental health issues. And and those things are certainly important. 
You're going to hear about gun control. You're going to hear calls for bans on guns. You're going to hear there should be national laws enacted to outlaw guns. You're going to hear about the lifestyle of this guy. You're going to hear from his friends and, and who he was. You're going to hear about his motives, and they're going to interview psychologists to, to analyze his life and the things that he wrote and the things that he did to help us try to understand his motives that brought him to that point. But as believers, if we're going to understand the truth of Scripture, we need to understand that no matter his decisions, no matter his motives, no matter his environment, this act was ultimately the result of sin in our world. See, we have a sin problem. And all the laws in the world are not going to change that. All the medication in the world is not going to change that. All the money in the world is not going to change that. One commentator said it like this. I, I thought he was dead on. He said, Jesus was not born into a gauzy, sentimental winter wonderland of, sweet, of swinging, uh, sweetly singing angels and cute reindeer nuzzling one another at the side of his manger. He was born into a war zone. And at the very rumor of his coming, Herod vowed to see him dead right along with thousands of his brothers. You see, our world is filled with darkness. And it's filled with disease. And it's filled with sickness. And it's filled with war and hatred and pain and suffering. And on and on and on the list goes. But here's what we do. In our hearts and our minds, we think things like this. Adam, I think you're overemphasizing sin. <laughs> it was a gun control issue, Adam. It's really not about sin. Or it was a mental health issue, Adam. It's not really about sin. Or it's this or it's that. And Adam, I understand sin's important, but it's not that important in, in this particular situation. But here's what happens. When we think like that, we're not thinking biblically. We're thinking worldly. You understand that? When we think like that, we don't have a biblical worldview. Because here's what we do as believers. We glaze over this issue of sin, don't we? We take sin and we just kind of sweep it under the rug. Now, let's be honest with each other just for a minute. You take your sin and you sweep it under the rug. So do I. You take the sin of your family and those you love and you just sweep it under the rug. We see the sin of the world and we just ignore it, right? We see the sin that surrounds us and we just don't think twice about it. We become so accustomed to us that we just don't even deal with it. So, so we look at crime in our, in our world. And we see that crime is such a normal part of our life that unless a crime is committed against you or someone you love, it's as if it doesn't exist, right? Right? People are murdered every day, but unless you know the person that was murdered, have some kind of relationship with that person, we just ignore it, don't we? We've gotten so accustomed to abortion in our world that few people even complain. We just don't see the big deal with sin. We don't understand, folks, that sin is real and has deadly consequences, period. And what happened Friday morning in Newtown, Connecticut is a direct result of the sin in our world. Don't let somebody lie to you and tell you it was anything other. Now, we understand that there are other issues that need to be dealt with, but those are symptoms of a greater problem. See, the truth of Scripture is that sin is terrible, and brutal, and it steals, kills, and destroys. See, here's the problem with our lives. Sometimes it takes a tragic situation like this to wake us up to that truth, doesn't it? Why weren't we angry about sin Thursday morning? Why weren't we angry about all the things that we're angry about now two weeks ago? See, sometimes we just kind of fall asleep at the wheel, don't we? We're so busy sweeping sin under the rug that we fail to see its consequences and we fail to see its reality. And sin upon sin builds and more sin and more sin and then something like this happens and we wonder where we were wrong. 
So we have to understand the effects of sin in our world. And I want you to understand something. As we think through the future, people are trying to figure out how do we fix this? How do we make sure this doesn't happen again? How do we correct this? You can, you can take this to the bank. Until we come to grips with the problem of sin, we cannot expect our world to get better, period. Until we come to grips with the problem of sin, we cannot expect our world to get better. So verse 13 says, I'm going to read it again. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. I want you to see God's plan here, what God's doing here. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, and he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. And while he was there, excuse me, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. Now, we've already seen that sin is real and has deadly consequences in our world. But the second thing I want you to understand in this context, in in Matthew chapter 2 and in the context of what we saw happening Friday morning, not only does sin have consequences, but number two, Even in the midst of that sin and suffering, God will receive glory. God will receive glory even in the midst of sin and suffering. Even in tragedy, good will come of it from God. Even amidst terrible suffering, God's will will prevail. Now the devil has kind of made it his his goal in, in life, I guess you could say, his mission to stop the things of God. And so he's tried to kind of throw a wrench into the plans of God from the beginning. We see it in Genesis chapter 3. God created the world good, enter Satan, enter sin as man committed sin, and everything changes. All through the Old Testament, we see pictures of Satan doing everything he can to stop the plans of God. We see it here in Matthew chapter 2. Over and over and over and over again, we see that the devil does everything he can to stop the things that God has ordained, to stop God's plan, to stop God's glory from being known into the world. But here's the question we begin to ask ourselves the question. Here's the question we begin to ask ourselves. How can we, Adam, understand that God's going to receive glory in the midst of suffering? We understand the devil's doing everything he can to stop the progression of Christ. We understand the devil's doing everything he can to stop the will of God. But how can we see glory? How can we see good in all that happened? How can we see good in this tragic circumstance? Well, this is, again, where we need to think biblically. See, if we think like the world, there's really no good. If we think like Christ and understand the teachings of Scripture, things are a little bit different. So I want to think for just a minute biblically about sorrow and about suffering. What does the Scripture teach? Not what does the world teach. Not what does the commentator on Fox say. What does the Bible say? 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You don't have to flip there if you don't want to, but I want you to listen to what it says. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 10 and 11 say this. This is Paul. Godly sorrow, there's that word, godly sorrow brings repentance and leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. See, there are two different kinds of sorrow here. Verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. Now, I want you to listen to this. Paul says, these are the characteristics that should be produced in you when you experience godly sorrow. Here's what he says. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Isn't that you right now? Don't we long to see justice done? Aren't we concerned? Don't we have indignation? Aren't we alarmed? Those are all the things that Paul says we should feel. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. See, here's the thing we have to understand. Here's Here's the pill that's hard for us to swallow biblically. Sometimes God uses our sorrow and our suffering to get our attention. See that? 
C.S. Lewis said it like this. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So Paul talks about this idea of godly sorrow. And you say, well, what, okay, what does godly sorrow look like? Well, he tells us in 2 Corinthians. Here's what he says. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but watch this, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. See, godly sorrow in tragedy should, should help us remind ourselves of kind of who we are. It should cause us to focus back inward on what we've become and what God has called us to do. You say, wait a minute, Adam, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that idea of repentance because I didn't have anything to do with Friday morning. I wasn't there. I didn't know that guy. I was doing my own thing at work. I was at home. I was at school. I was minding my own business. Why should I be repentant? Because Paul shares with us and shows us scripturally that when we recognize tragedy and we see godly sorrow, it should lead us to repentance. You say, well, what do I need to repent about? I got two things very quickly. Number one, we should all repent for all the times we have ignored the deadliness of sin in our lives and the lives of those around us. We need to repent for that. We need to repent for ignoring the deadliness of sin, folks. This man did what he did because of sin, period. Now, there are all sorts of issues that came from sin, and it manifested itself in a lot of different ways, but the reason he did what he did was there was sin in his life, and we say, well, I could never get to that point. He probably never thought he'd get to that point either years ago. Neither did his mom. But see, we let sin build upon sin, build upon sin, and we ignore it, and we ignore it, and we ignore it. We need to repent because we need to see very clearly that sin is deadly. And it affects our lives. The second thing we need to do is we need to repent for the sins of our nation. I think for far too long, believers have sat idly by as law after law after law has been passed that intentionally removes God from our society. We've sat back for far too long, folks. You say, well, I'm not in charge of the government. I'm not, you know what? You are God's hands and God's feet. And God has called the church to make a difference. You know, it's very easy for us to point fingers at everybody else. You know what? I think we need to point fingers back at ourselves. What if the church had stood up, right? What if the church had done what God had called us to do? What if we'd been more vocal? What if we'd been more forthright in proclaiming the name of Christ to the world? I just wonder how things would be different. You see, here's what we are accustomed to doing. We sweep sin under the rug. We ignore its deadliness. We don't understand that God can work in the midst of pain and suffering and we get farther and farther and farther away from the will of God. And so we find ourselves currently in our world now living in a nation that we have allowed to systematically remove God from all things. You understand that, right? We live in a nation that has systematically removed God from our schools and from our society. And you say, oh, come on, Adam. <laughs> really, I mean it. We know about that in the 1960s. You can't honestly tell me that that has anything to do with what's going on now. Well, let me ask you a question. When we tell God that he's not welcome, why should we be surprised when evil appears? Right? When we tell God he's not welcome, why should we be surprised when evil appears? One commentator asked it like this, or said it like this. He said, when God told, when, excuse me, when we told God to shove off, he honored our requests. 
And we just sweep sin under the rug and we ignore its deadliness and we don't want to do anything about it and we sit back idly and then we're shocked when it manifests itself like this. We shouldn't be. I read a scholar this week and said, you know, we ought to wonder why it doesn't happen more often. Praise God, he, he, he puts his grace and his mercy upon us and he protects us in so many ways, but this is a direct result of sin. And when we miss the deadliness of sin and when we, when we miss God's will and we miss God's glory and we set all that stuff aside, we begin to see these, happen, these things happen more and more and more and more. And as we shriek back more, evil raises its ugly head and it rears its ugly head and it continues to seek, kill, and destroy. Verse 19, as we continue to move through this text. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and he said... Verse 20, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So when he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Now see, this is a picture of God saving Christ, God the Father saving Christ the Son in the midst of torture and tragedy and terrible situations because we've seen that sin is real. We've already seen that. We've seen that in the midst of this suffering, God has a plan and his plan will be accomplished. But finally and ultimately, because we see what God has done in saving Christ, we understand that the only hope of the world, the only hope of the world in the midst of sin and suffering and devastation is in Jesus Christ. Our only hope is in Christ. It was the only hope for Israel. It's the only hope for America. It's the only hope for our world. So here's the question we ask ourselves. Understanding sin in the world, understanding its deadliness, understanding how we've missed the boat over and over again, understanding that Christ is the only real answer to the evil of the world, here's the question we ask ourselves. When are we going to wake up to this truth? When are we going to live our lives in such a way that it's actually real? Because we live our lives in such a way now that we just kind of, we're going to take all this stuff and set it aside. That's great, but I got to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> That's great, but I got other things I got to do, Adam. I think the Bible is clear. And as we examine these sorts of incidents and we examine these, these brutal attacks and we examine the evil of the world, we need to understand the truth of Scripture. And we need to understand it in such a way that it changes the way we live. You say, Adam, you've been, you've been talking a lot about Christ and hope, but here's the question I've got for you, Adam. If Christ is our hope, if, if God is, is our only hope in this situation, then where was God on the morning, Friday morning in Newtown, Connecticut? Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God allow bad things to happen to good people? It's the age-old question. It's the age-old question of why would a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? It's a question that's been debated for centuries, and we're not going to solve it this morning. And it, it can be very difficult as you get into some of the philosophers and some of the answers, but I want to give you four very clear things that I think you need to understand. Four very clear things as we begin to question where, where God was and why God allowed these things to happen. I want you to consider these four things. Number one, we need to be careful not to judge God's motives and decisions based on our finite understanding. Boy, it's so easy to play God, isn't it? It's so easy to say, oh, Lord, I mean, if I had been you, then this is what I would have done. Lord, if I had been you, then I would have done this. If I had the power to stop it, Lord, I would have stopped it. 
See, here's the thing we don't understand. God knows infinitely more than we do. He sees the whole picture. We see this tiny little speck of history. We see our little lives and our little world. God sees it all. It's very difficult for us to understand in our finite minds why God would, would, would allow this to happen or, or allow this to take place. But what we need to understand is our sense of judgment is not God's. We are not God and we can't place our system of morals upon him and expect him to react in ways we think he should react. You know, when we begin to think about God's justice, we need to be reminded very clearly that we're all sinners, right? And we all deserve punishment. And the fact that Christ chose to save even one of us is a testament to his love and to his grace and to his mercy. Number two, we need to be clear of the fact that there was no suffering and, and no pain prior to our sin. Right, we could say what we want to about evil now, but it didn't exist on this planet until we sinned. One writer said it like this. I think he sums it up nicely. He says, the world produces enough food for each person to, to, to consume 3,000 calories per day. The problem is that corrupt governments and selfish individuals don't care enough to feed the hungry. Now, here's what he says. Listen, it's a cop-out to blame God for human responsibility. You want to talk about the problem of evil? Talk about the problem of evil within your heart. We want to talk about the problem of sin. Let's talk about the problem of sin within our hearts. We want to talk about why God allows sin. Let's talk about the problem of why we brought sin into the world and why we allow it to continue to grow. Number three, we want our lives to be filled with happiness and satisfaction, but that's not always God's plan. I think we've been duped into this Western version of Christianity that we should always be happy and we should always be content and we should always get all the things that we need. You know, just look around the world right now and you realize that's not always the case. Happiness and contentment in our world, folks, are rare. You need to understand that by our terms. Happiness and contentment throughout history is rare based on our terms. We just get this mindset that this is God's gift to us. We should be happy and we should be content in all things. But history is littered with people that weren't content and weren't happy and died serving Christ. You need to remember that. The world is full of people. History is full of people that were tortured and beaten and starved to death for the sake of Christ. So we got to move beyond this idea that it's always about happiness and it's always about our satisfaction. Then number four, we can debate all we want to about why evil exists, but the truth is it does exist. And we could talk all we want to about where it came from and debate and go into all the philosophies. Here's the bottom line. The only true answer for evil in our world is Christ. You see, the world is going to struggle with where to go from here. How do we move forward? How do we change this? How do we enact laws? How do we give more money? How do we bring legislation up that will change this and cause it never to happen again? What we understand as believers, the truth of Scripture, if we're going to speak truthfully, if we're going to speak biblically into this situation, into the lives of these people that ask these questions, we have to understand there is no hope outside of Christ. All the things of the world are just band-aids on the symptoms of a greater problem. Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said it like this. He said, in the face of such horror, we are driven again and again to the cross and the resurrection of Christ, knowing that the reconciling power of God in Christ is the only adequate answer to such a depraved and diabolical power. See, the world can't offer hope. The world can't offer a path forward, only we can. And we have the opportunity as believers to speak truth into the world. 
to think biblically, to examine these events from Newtown, Connecticut from a scriptural standpoint. And when we do that, when we think biblically, we understand very clearly that sin is real and we need to understand the powers of sin. We need to recognize the deadliness of sin in our lives and in our world. We also recognize that even in the midst of this pain and this suffering, God's will will be done. Good will come from this, as hard as that is for us to believe. As difficult as that is for us to comprehend, good will come. God's will will not be thwarted. And then number three, the final thing we understand is the place that the world seeks the final answers. Where do we go? How do we move forward? The only way we move forward is in Christ. So as believers, we pray, we love, we seek Christ and share him as the only true source of hope in this world. That is the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word, Lord. We thank you for the the ability to, to spend a little time and the freedom to spend a little time this morning studying, Father. So we just pray right now that your word would just invade our hearts, Father. It would be more than just words I've spoken or words on a page, but they would be words that would change lives. Father, I pray for the courage to share, the courage to be salt and light. Lord, when the world seeks answers in, in, in places that they'll never find answers, Father, may we bear the truth. May we think biblically on issues, Father. May we be godly people in our community that can speak truth into the lives of unbelievers. And Father, may we understand clearly above all things that the only hope for this world is Christ. May we always run to the cross. May your name be glorified in all things. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes. To, to, maybe you want to pray for some of the events. Maybe you want to pray where you are. I know you've probably spent a lot of time in prayer already. Maybe you want to do that again. Maybe you want to repent from your sins. Maybe for the first time you've recognized the sinfulness of your life. You want to turn and repent, turn to Christ. Or maybe you want to join this church. But this is your time now as we sing together. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. We invite you to visit our campus at 3794 Hamilton Road in LaGrange, Georgia. Or visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.